Okay, hello. Welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I have um, one of my most exciting guests so far, for sure, uh, in terms of, of size of influence, definitely. So welcome to The Prudentialist. Well, thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, the Prudentialist uh, is a cultural and geopolitical commentator. He's big on YouTube. He's big on Twitter. He has an awesome Substack. That's actually one of the few that I read in full every time I get it because everybody in our space knows you're subscribed to like so many of these things. And you really need to, to choose which ones you really read. But yours is one I always read because I think you have great understanding of the space. Uh, you have kind of like Astral's understanding of the space mixed with, we'll get to this, but I think what I, my favorite thing about your work is you have a kind of legal mind. I don't know if anybody has ever said that to you, but, but you have a really good sense of like criteria and um, you're good at unpacking like the principles behind things, I think. Uh, and so I came to really enjoy your work through a piece that you wrote about gatekeeping, which I thought was a, a great comprehensive sort of exploration of our space. So yeah, that's why I'm having you on. Well, well, thank you. Uh, I think you're the first person to say legal, which is funny because um, when I was in university, I was planning to go to law school. I had worked for attorneys throughout all of my undergrad. That was sort of the the dream to go to since um, my health condition didn't allow for military service. So I was like, well, I'll just find a way to serve otherwise. And uh, I woke up towards the end of my university career managing this like three-story residential building of just where lawyers would rent out a room or whatever to work at. And I just woke up absolutely miserable. So I guess the analytical part of the of the thinking stayed, but I, I'm kind of glad I don't work in legal. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'm a barred California attorney. I don't, I don't know if you know that, but- uh... Yeah, so I I did the whole law thing, and I am extremely glad that I'm not a, <laughs> a practicing <laughs> lawyer. Um, yeah, every lawyer I talk to says the same thing. They're all just like, "I'm miserable. I hate this. Make it stop." They're all like, "Oh, how can I? I want to be a writer. Like, how can I do that?" And I'm just like, "You just got to do it. You know, there's no there's no answer." So I, think, I was about to say, you and Dan Baltic are probably the best examples of writing attorneys that like what they do. <laughs> well, but he, I'm not an attorney. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. But I mean, but with a, a legal background, attorney. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah he, he yeah. does it pretty well. No, yeah. And he's he's very funny about it. But he says that same thing. He's Dan Baltic's always like, fuck this. This is terrible. <laughs> you're, you're lucky you got out. I mean, you know, it's good money, but I, I think I just, so I, I was like working as a lawyer and I, for one of the summers, and I was like, I just can't do this. It's just too terrible. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about, uh, first and foremost, we have a lot of topics to, to chat about here. I've, I've done kind of a deep dive on your work. Um, I have many thoughts about it. I think it's, it's uh, again, really great. But the first thing I want to talk about, since this is a podcast about propaganda, first and foremost, yeah. um, what is the prudentialist? What, is it, what does it mean? What does it stand for? And yeah. The story is a lot more boring than you think. Um, so I feel like a lot of guys in their mid to late 20s kind of came up with, you know, consuming internet culture, especially with YouTube. And like I graduated high school in 2014, like I'm a young guy, I turned 27 this year. And, you know, oh, like the whole Gamergate thing happened. And I think everyone kind of got swept into the, you know, the agitprop and the skeptic community and all that. And so, you know, you listen to people like that for years and, 
uh, come COVID in 2020, I was, you know, listening to a lot of the people that I now interact with on a regular basis. And I was sitting in this dialysis chair because I was going through kidney failure at the time. And I was thinking to myself, listening to these people, I was like, well, why not give it a shot yourself? You know, in when I lived in El Paso prior to moving where I live now, I uh, was always the sort of odd man out politically. And so I, I was always asked for sort of the conservative or contrarian take on the progressive orthodoxy of the day. And so I was like, well, let's give it a shot. And one of my biggest influences um, of people that I like to listen to, and he's one of the few people that I will listen to in full. A lot of people will catch up on live streams and do like two times speed or whatever. I'll listen to him in full and I'll read his work in full. And that's uh, a gentleman named The Distributist. He also goes by Dave Green. Uh, and he's a really good writer and a really good, you know, he, he's he's got a few years on him. So like he, he kind of knows it as an older millennial, just how the space operates. And well, I thought, okay, well, the distributist is obviously a Catholic term. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but uh, I went with prudentialist in part as homage to what he does, but also because I thought the prudence of forethought, we should look back towards the past and get a better understanding of, you know, where to go in the future. Um, very Burkean in, in a sense. When I started out, that was the profile picture was Edmund Burke. I had this like long sort of cringy script about uh, you know, talking about how we got to today, you know, reflections on the revolutions in France, more like reflections on the revolutions in American culture, because things have radically gone off the rails. I don't think anyone left or right would tell you otherwise, but uh, that's more or less how it got started. It was just, a, you know, I, I have this aesthetic of being a well-dressed uh, sort of, I try not to swear when I give my lectures, although I'm notoriously bad elsewhere, but, you know, I, I try and put up a nice you know, authentic sort of pro-social behavior. Um, although I feel like everyone does like a suit and tie these days and that can go all over the place with whoever you talk to, but that's more or less what the Prudentialist is. Well, I love it because it's really a great word for your overall, you know, branding is an exercise in trying to put a name to something that is un unnameable. You know, you can't really, the brand is an essence of something, right? And even just the name, I've talked about this before, but uh, there's a great biblical scholar who I follow on Twitter, and he did a whole thing about the, you know, some of the the first thing that God asked man to do is to name things, and he says, name them, and it'll go down to the soul of that thing. And I think that the names of things really are a reflection of something um, platonic, whatever you want to call it, like deep in the core of what that thing is. And I think that prudential, like prudence is perfect for you because it just seemed like everything about you screams prudence, which is really cool. Uh, I want to go to what you just said about being in dialysis. So do you think that, I don't know what your condition is. I don't want to like, if you don't want to talk about it. It's oh, like I'm, totally I'm, I'm open about it. I've talked okay. about it before, so that's okay. I'm just wondering like, you have you we we both are face fags for lack of a better word, uh, and that just means somebody who is in our dissident scene but is willing to show our face. And you're saying that you were kind of had this moment, this like uh, primordial moment in the dialysis chair. Do you think that your experiences with does yeah I don't know what you would call it, but like pain has that made you more willing to take risks to be out there and to share your perspective, even though it could get you in trouble? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I didn't start off showing my face when I began. So my very, you know, until I think it was really until February of this year that I, I didn't show my face. So for the first year and some change, but 
so no, I, I underwent kidney failure. I had a birth defect as a kid that kind of made it an inevitability and uh, it came in the middle of, of 2020 in COVID. Uh, I was very blessed. I'm a rather skinny individual. So um, I got access to a pediatric kidney uh, transplant, I, only wow. waiting for a year. But uh, it definitely, moly. yeah, it gave me a perspective on life. Uh, when you when you have a few brushes with death in your mid-20s, you kind of want to get right with your God and everything like that. So uh, it led to a journey back to Christianity. It led to me really kind of understanding that there is a lot more to, to life than I think that a lot of people take for granted. And that's really been my big thesis of 2022 is to sort of encourage this pro-social behavior so we're not as de-atomized or as I like to say, digitally deracinated. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I mean, you get one life and, uh, you know, I think you should probably spend your time with it wisely um, because, you know, that what you do here kind of determines what happens afterwards. So maybe we should be striving towards something better. So why do you think the people in our scene are so, I, I think about this all the time. And I have this theory that, the left is likes the feeling of the safety net. They like to feel the safety net on them. You know, they want to go there. They want to fall into it. Whereas we are the opposite. We hate that feeling. Like we, we hate the idea of food stamps, you know, or, or of like unemployment. Like we hate those safety net things. And that makes us actually too prudent to use to use your like like not that you are but we're we're too smart about risk and that makes it so that we're way more afraid to share because we know it's going to get us in trouble so i i guess my question is why are so many people in our scene so for lack of a better word cowardly about being out well, if you mean being out as in showing your face or your name, I, yeah. I think that I don't know if cowardly would be the right word, um, in part because there's a lot of things that by showing your face or using your real name, you kind of run the risk of, I mean, unless you're doing this full time, then I mean, you're probably a little safer than others. But uh, I think primarily because you don't get to say certain things uh, out publicly if you show your face. Like there's no way that I think you and I are going to say some of the things that we see anonymous individuals do on, on Twitter. And uh, to some extent, I think that that's necessary because as we can tell, I mean, I talked a little bit about that in the gatekeeping article, but, uh, and I talked about it as well on one of the two weekly shows that I do where, you know, I don't expect like the Claremont Institute to wear frog face, you know, like I don't expect them to act or put on the garb of frog Twitter. Uh, whereas frog Twitter serves a kind of an important place in moving the discourse to the, further to the right, which in our current environment, I think is very much necessary. And they can only do that, I think, by being anonymous. There's a reason why people will go to great lengths, people like Zero HP Lovecraft or Agippius to use a voice changer when interviewing people, because they are probably in positions where you know, if they were outed, that's their livelihood and whatever they're doing, their career, whatever family potentially is out the window and they're on their ass. And so I, I don't know if it's cowardice. On one hand, there is the downside to it, which I've talked about, where it's kind of easy for any Joe Schmo, whether they work in IT management or they just flip burgers for $7.25 an hour to get behind some random account and just, you know, make a space toxic or something. But uh, I think you have to take the good and the bad. And I don't think that anonymity is 
uh, something that we should call as cowardly. I, I think especially because there's a lot of people these days where, oh, you know, um, once you start doing that right, you're you're more susceptible to self-censorship, which I think is clear. I mean, I play by the YouTube rules, right? I don't say anything extreme yeah. in the first 30 seconds, but uh, it doesn't mean, right, that you can't be, it, it, it's the nature of this sort of like everybody's a fed environment and, you know, there's controlled opposition. And I mean, I think we come, sometimes buy into our own narratives too much uh, when it comes to that, but I still think that anonymity is a, a thing for both protection but also allowing you to move things in a direction that maybe people like you and I can't do. That's very, that's a great point. It's the, the, the frogs, the anon frogs serve a purpose that, yeah, they, they can go to a place on the spectrum that we definitely cannot go. I don't know if I necessarily agree though, with the part of losing things. I, I don't, uh, I get, I guess the question, though, is ultimately, okay, well, what if they weren't Anon and they just said all this stuff? What what, what would they then lose, right? <laughs> what would they then lose? Like, I mean, even BAP says at this point, I was listening to him on Jack Murphy in 2019 because I was curious. And he even, he, even he says, look, being doxxed is not going to matter to me because he yeah. already has a setup. You know, he's already set up. But for the younger frogs, he advises to stay hidden. But I understand the idea of like, okay, we want to be able to access these institutions. I personally, I mean, you talk a lot about institutional capture. I kind of personally think that that's a dead end, to be honest, because I've done it. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's really that much to be gained by pretending to be something outwardly and then fighting the the system from within. I, I just don't, I think we've been there. And I, I don't think that that's really effective anymore. So, well, I would say that's political entryism, you know, like let's, let's go, if I were to clean up my image, right. And apply for a, like a, you know, a, a internship or work for some, you know, big, conservative law firm or whatever right that fights for, against democrat laws or whatever i mean there i probably would agree with you wholeheartedly I, I think what the kind of institutional capture that i think i've been focusing on or i don't even know if i want to use that term I, myself and a, a cohort of mine named charlemagne wrote about this where it's just like the online space is great because it allows for you to have a really good discussion about how to move things in a certain direction but it also allows us to create these really insular uh, sort of just like, you know, like monkeys in a cage just flinging shit at each other. And that doesn't look good to outsiders, even if the ideas are great, like, oh, wow, you people really need to get your act together. Um, and so I think what we would want is to get people that would be more privy to our ideas or causes and those that have more sway. Because it's like, I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't live in New York City. I don't live in Austin or Dallas or San Francisco. So, you know, I, I would need to in anything that I say or do to help get those kind of people and get their attention. And so, uh, yeah, I would agree with you, though, that like political entryism, I feel like it's been done and tried a million times. There's a, a long history about it from, you know, Pat Buchanan to Sam Francis about how we've been, you know, anytime that someone tries to start something up, you know, they fight it from within, they get quashed. Yeah, so, so what does that mean, political entryism? Uh, so more or less the idea that uh, either you're going to start an organization and partner with somebody or... Uh, you yourself as an individual, you're going to go work for this institution and you're going to change it from the inside. You know, I, I, 
people that want to, you know, internally reform things. I, I think that a lot of that's been tried and a lot of that uh, is sort of a dead end, I think, on the national scale. But I mean, locally, I think it has far more influence, especially for the fact that a lot of people locally in America are so politically illiterate. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize how much power that their local county commissioner or their city council has over them. And I think that that plays a huge role on that you have to also fight alongside with the federal because, you know, you can't take over one without the other. Yeah, yeah. I just see the victories we've had, right? And to me, it seems like the victories we have, we don't have any victories of somebody being super high up. Can you hear this? I have like a, of course, leaf blower outside my house. No, I can't hear you okay, at great. all. Uh, that, that um, so... The victories we have, it would seem to me, are people who are outward about it. You know, we even in the political sphere, the, I think it all kind of comes back to the realization that this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual yeah. and an emotional battle, right? So, like in, uh, I, I'm a uh, increasingly practicing Chabad Jew. My, my mother is Jewish. My father's Christian. I don't know if you know about that, but I was the biggest self-hating Jew of all time for a very long time. <laughs> I, I completely, you know, I actually went on TRS like to like talk about it. I, so I'm like completely, I get it. Um, but what I've been learning recently is uh, that really the problem is Jews without religion. Uh, Jews without God uh, is a very, you know, there's a certain sort of status that 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 group kind of takes on. And that was the milieu I grew up in. And I really rejected it forcefully. But you can't be, you know, it's not good to be completely self-hating. You have to find a way to to love yourself, you know, no matter what the, the status. In any case, uh, it, I meet with a rabbi every week and we talk a lot about the Kabbalah and the Talmud. And there's a lot in there about the forces of the soul uh, earth, fire, water, air, right? I feel like in our phase today, we are at a time of total air, right? Everything is air. Like everything's talking and, and yeah. your identity can be whatever you want. And everything is, it's just like out of control air. And it's funny that the word that we use for us is based, which is like earth, you know, like everything. And, and I think that the bat they want us to fight the battle with air they want us to just talk and like talk 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 right but really the spiritual which is fire the emotional which is water and the body which is earth those are the three things we like need and those are the only way that we're going to actually defeat this like out of control wind air that they have right so like when I'm thinking about what we need to do, it's like this idea that an rational argument is going to win. Like this idea that we're going to get get into these institutions and like, oh, we're going to out argue the guy who says that we should cut our dicks off. Like it's not. We, there's never. <laughs> we're never going to fucking out argue. Well, well, we we well, I, that I mean? that phase died in like 2014 <laughs> when we were right. trying. You know, the age of SJW, you know, owned compilations or all those uh, when Ben Shapiro had the, you know, the the dunking them with facts and like that died. Like we know that that route doesn't work. I, 
at, at this point, what I think matters more is, is that you're, you have the ability to formulate a network. Um, I, there are, you know, the, the thing that I really enjoy and the things that, you know, the, in sort of the YouTube community and people that I talk to is just that, you know, we formulated and we had a conference earlier this year in February in Tennessee outside of Nashville. And it was just a fantastic discussion. And the whole topic was about strategies to navigate the ruins. And it had everything from trying to synthesize the BAP concept of the longhouse with Italian futurism. You had uh, the more traditional approaches about, you know, getting back to the teleology of Christianity because the majority of the people there were. And it was just, those are the kind of things that I think we need to do. Like the, the talk, talk, talk with our enemies. They don't care what you say, you know? It's it's the side that wants to be left alone, as Oren McIntyre would say, is going to lose to the side that wants to win. And the side that wants to win does not care how much hot air you you put out there. Um, I mean, not to say that, you know, things like, you know, meme magic or other aspects, that those don't serve a purpose. They certainly do. But I, I think that a lot of our focus should be more grounded in the real and with networks and making friends and having people in places that you can rely on. I mean, I think one of the bigger projects that should happen in the future is some kind of mutual aid society, right? So if someone gets doxxed or fired or whatever, then, you know, you have a network and you've got people to support you because friends shouldn't be unemployed because of what they believe. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do agree with that. We do a lot of talk, talk, talk. There's always something about some kind of discourse on Twitter and uh, it, can, it, can, it gets tiring sometimes because I don't want to be terminally addicted to what the latest trend or drama is. I mean, I think it's good to be able to find each other. And I think that that's the the great part of this. But I just feel like at this point, uh, right. I, I mean, I completely, you just put that way, way better than I did. But yeah, it, you you articulated that extremely well. I, and I totally agree. It's about building real connections. Have you seen Align? Align is like a, a, a list of businesses that's based. No, I have like You can like post your business, you know, I, I and I highly recommend people doing that because I think, yeah. And like things like find my friends. It's like, that's what we should be doing all the time is just, you know, building these bridges. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about more of, of your work. Um, sure. You have, uh, let's, we can transition this well, because we're talking about institutions. I'm kind of arguing, like, I think it's not about, I, I think the time of trying to, um, you know, infiltrate the institution is dead. You talk about institutional capture. You have a really great, I I think I, I uh, explored a lot of your work. I think a really great int, uh, entree or whatever you would say into your work is hearing you on the Jay Burden podcast. I think you did a really good job. Like, it's like very straight. Like you, I can think you laid out your thinking very clearly there. Um, and you say this thing, about the grift of misery porn to drive votes inside institutions. I thought that was really insightful. Um, it's like the way that these institutions, this and this goes back to our discussion of propaganda, documents their struggles to get money. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that with regard to institutions? Well, sure, right? This kind of builds off of Moldbug's bit on Tucker Carlson about you know, you want to create incentives, you want power, you want to create a reason for you to, to get grant money or to get in power to get votes. Um, like the left enjoys misery porn in a way that the right does in similar ways, but for different reasons. The left will do it. Well, they'll, they'll talk about climate change. They'll talk about police violence on minorities or stop Asian hate. 
Um, and it's just the sort of cavalcade of misery porn that's all packaged together with intersectionality. So every bit of a left-wing cause all fits together in this coalition that many groups inside the coalition kind of hate each other. But uh, it works to sort of drive forward their idea of progress or power, or expanding bureaucracy or um, you know entitlements or benefits or whatever. And that works really well. Uh, the right does it too in a lot of ways where I think even the early days of like, you know, talking to SJWs or Stephen Crowder's Change My Mind series is that, um, oh, we can laugh at the lunacy of these people or laugh at the absurdity. But at the same day, at the same time, we kind of despair over the fact that like, wow, like, you know, this person, like just earlier, like yesterday with that now this interview with that terrible Dylan Mulvaney character with Biden, it's just like, you've been a, you've been transitioning publicly for 277 days and you treat it like it's this, you know, childlike fascination of like, oh, wow, you know, like you're again, wearing femininity like a skin suit. Um, and to some extent, I think, and zero HP Lovecraft, I thought said it best yesterday, we really need to stop putting this person out there optically, like in our, in our minds or in our viewership, because we do, uh, you know, it's great to get people to join a cause or whatever, but when you're constantly feeding them over and over and over again with say, oh yeah, they're telling you to cut your dick off. Oh yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're wanting to encourage, you know, all out nuclear devastation or, oh yeah, they're encouraging, uh, you know, these migrants to come into where you live that way, like your vote means less or, you know, the, the, you know, high trust of your society decreases. Right. And it, I think it has the same impact, you know, kind of similar to September 11th. There was a study that came out a little afterwards where they said children that were constantly exposed to the news thought that the same event was happening over and over and over again, like the towers were falling down or being attacked. And it's like, we get it, but I don't want people to be black pilled about it. And, you know, selling this like packaged misery porn, I think yeah, sometimes yeah. really does, you know, discourage people or black pill them. And there are some that will argue that like, actually like, you know, being black pilled is the first step to realizing like the work that you have to do, how serious this is. And I think that that argument has a lot of value to it. I kind of adhere to it, but at the same time, I think that we can't be focused on being miserable together. I get that misery loves company, but we really shouldn't be this group of sad saps that are watching our culture, or our world kind of be taken apart with a surgical knife and hormones. Yeah. And then, and it's sort of just self-satisfying of like, oh, well, there's no, there's no hope. It's just this horrible, evil thing that I can't really do anything about. So <clears throat> uh, you have this other great, great quote of manipulation of procedural outcomes to get a desired result i that must be a mold bug thing or something. oh yeah that's that's i think that's like chapter seven like the dirty <laughs> secret about government and that's if there's one thing that i think out of the entire bit of uh the open letter to open-minded progressives yep. it's definitely that phrase uh just we we see it most recently with uh governor DeSantis's bit about shipping all those migrants to martha's vineyard because now they all have visas because they're victims of a crime. Like it's the perfect manipulation to get okay, what you wait, want. Let's, let's explain this for normies. So what are sure. exactly are we talking about? We're first of all, we're referencing Curtis Yarvin, a letter to an open-minded progressive, which is a life-changing red-pilling thing. It red-pilled me, red-pilled a bunch of people. Um, and his overall point in this and please correct me if I'm I'm wrong. I think to be perfectly honest, I've read maybe like 75% of it. I don't even think I've <laughs> it. But uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, it's really long and it's very dense. 
and uh, you need to Google things as you go. But his overall point is the notion that there is this conservative thing that has existed in America for hundreds of years is actually not true. The dominant force in American life has always been progressivism. And that progressive Leviathan is this massive, powerful, basically, I mean, he essentially says evil uh, force that has been manipulating people, enslaving people, uh, destroying people's lives increasingly over and over, and that this Leviathan needs to keep eating things in order to survive, which is why we get further and further left. It has to keep destroying the, this next thing, destroying the following thing in order to um, basically, uh, it, like a company, it has to keep growing in order to live. So that's groundwork of what we're even talking about. So maybe you can kind of like, say sure. so, is correct or it, what you're saying uh, so with the the phrase right uh manipulation of procedural outcomes to get a desired result is sort of just uh if you're doing a, a science experiment right at home and the results don't match your hypothesis then you will edit the variables or change the definitions of the words or your hypothesis itself so that the results match what you want um, that, that's why, you know, uh, this is why Yarvin has had such an influence on someone like Christopher Rufo, uh, where, you know, you can ban things, but if they can change the definitions or do it somewhere else where it still affects your children, then what good was just saying X is banned? You know, when you can create exceptions to borrow a little bit from the German legal theorist, Carl Schmidt, uh, create a state of exception to the rule then you can more or less reign over and get what you want regardless. I mean, uh, we, we see this quite often in government where, if, you know, Congress doesn't do what it wants. You know, Barack Obama would famously say, you know, I've got my pen and my phone. I will just, you know, write an executive order to do things, uh, which he did a lot of. I mean, presidents do, especially since FDR onward. But that, that's really what we're referring to in, in this instance to the, the people listening but I mean, Curtis Yarvin's, if you're going to read the open letter, I mean, there are some parts I think that have probably not aged as well. I would have to reread it. I've, I've read it maybe three times, but um, the things that he cites and the books and the literature that he references, uh, if you want to get red pilled, you, you you read the footnotes and citations. Yeah, right, 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 right. The, the original sources. So, but let's think, is there a clear example of what we're talking about with institutions, manipulation of procedural outcomes? You, you said the thing with DeSantis, but I'm not 100% following. Oh, sure. So uh, Ron DeSantis making this point, right? You know, well, let's just put the migrants where they are supposed, like to Martha's Vineyard, right? Like we're going to show the, like we're going to own the libs by putting all of these like 50 some odd migrants at Martha's Vineyard. And really what had emerged out of the spectacle was for 44 hours, you know, the the, the liberals of Martha's Vineyard got to enjoy a political orgasm of virtue signaling. Um, you know, oh, for 44 hours, we housed them, we fed them, this changed my life. You know, they told me all these stories about all the coyotes all the way up to, you know, the border and how that like they lost family. When this like very sort of like oddly, you know, cheery white picket fence way of talking about like the absolute struggle that these people go through. Um, but, you know, they managed to get sent off back to, you know, other centers and things like that outside of Martha's Vineyard. And of course, rather than, you know, say, creating a, an interesting way to challenge the federal government, you know, say, sending them back home, uh, you know, what happens? Well, Ron DeSantis is now under investigation. Um, Bear County in Texas, where I think these migrants had originally came from before being sent to Florida, 
uh, their district attorney had said that they're going to charge, you know, him, the, the, you know, what happened to them was a, a crime of trafficking. <laughs> and because of how our laws work, you know, if you're a trafficking victim, we have what's known as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So they can get a visa that way and they can stay in the country. So now, even if you wanted to deport these individuals, they've got a visa to stay because now we've procedurally manipulated it to say, well, actually, these guys are trafficking victims. I there see. go, okay. they get to see they so, stay in the country. So that's what we're saying. We're we're saying that they're manip that you're saying the left is manipulating the, the system. Yeah, the procedural. What, what is a procedural? What does that mean? Procedural outcome to get a desired result? Because to me, it seems like a procedural outcome is a result. Yeah, well, yeah, but it's. So the say if the standard operating procedure for something allows for X to happen, but you really want Y to happen, you change how the procedure would you know gotcha. undergo to to I get see. the to get outcome Y instead of X. Okay, and and this is what they're doing all the time. They're constantly tweaking these procedures in order to create the outcome that they want, which is that these are now trafficking victims. Yeah, <laughs> whereas and, before and, which they is were why you. Yeah, which is why you get people saying like, oh, you know, they're hypocrites because they do this. And really, if it were a Republican, we do. I was like, yeah, we've known this forever. This is how it works, you know. Right, right, right. So it seems like you didn't like this uh, DeSantis move. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was entertaining, uh, to say the least. I just congratulations. You sent the people and I mean, the the debate and politics over migrants is awful because on, on one hand, like you don't want illegal immigrants in your country but at the same time i can't you know totally disregard the fact that they're human beings and that they probably have suffered to get here or worse they've been trafficked to get here and our government provides incentives for them to come up here um but you know on i the move was fun it was entertaining yes but at the same time strategically i think sending a few migrants you know the busload or whatever to say New York City or Washington, D.C. or Martha's Vineyard, uh, congrats, you put them towards the center of power and that's going to get the federal government's attention and now they're going to find ways to punish you for it. And uh, the move itself, I think, yeah, it's it was a nice political stunt, but what did it accomplish? They aren't going to be deported. The people that you sent over are now, uh, they have their visas. And what makes matters worse is, is that uh, the we, we've reduced the issue of open borders on the south of the u.s mexico border or you know on that on that border uh we made it trivialized and we've taken it less seriously because of it yeah i see uh i like i definitely get that argument but i what it is is pure saul alinsky so Alinsky's yeah. rules for radicals i think the number one rule that is used by the you know hillary clinton the clintons who were basically just that's their rule book that's what they do is uh make the enemy live up to its own book of rules so i, I think a lot of these rufo type big name people right like a lot of these i, I actually have some personal experience with this a lot of these like well-funded conservative operatives are using Alinsky. They're 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 leaning full into Alinsky, and this was clearly an Alinsky move i think oh yeah the desantis camp and i think ultimately we the person to destroy is alinsky right that's the problem he is the pro fucking problem and and anybody who's doing that is in a way only creating more issues and i think that that's kind of what you're saying on the other hand i made a tiktok video out of the uh 
they clearly, as you said, were having a self, you know, they were loving the fact that they were housing them. And they made a video, the people of Martha's Vineyard, I think it was actually a church, of them like saying goodbye. Did you see the Te Amo video? Yeah. Oh my God. So they kind of <laughs> wave goodbye and they go, Te Amo. And like some young high school girls like run after the bus. And it was just so cringy that everybody who saw this video was like, these people fucking suck. Like these people are just awful. And I think that it was probably worth it just for that. Because like, <laughs> you know, like it was probably worth it just so now like, leftists and our enemies they all you know it's hard to most people don't know what martha's vineyard is you know i have a ton of experience with it i've been in this world i know who these people are i know how fucking hypocritical and awful they are but your normal everyday average person they don't fucking know what they don't even have any consciousness that martha's vineyard is this like center of essentially limousine communists that is like running the country you know they don't even know that so I thought it was really good that at least those people were captured on camera being fucking hypocrites, you know? And and I think that it was like maybe worth it just for that. Maybe. I I, I guess in the, at the end, I mean, it's great to expose them for hypocrites and what they are. I just feel like, well, for those of us who've kind of been politically in the know, like it's good. I, I But I mean, for mass electoral politics, yeah, I can see well, how that definitely serves a purpose. Right. I mean, it's not going to like, I don't know. What did you think about uh, Yarvin's piece on elves and shit? You know, oh, yeah. uh, I, I, I would I would simply tell the your audience that I did a stream with Jeremy Carl of the Claremont Institute because he wrote a reply to Yarvin's piece and I really liked it. Um, and I had some reservations about Yarvin's take on this, you know, well, you need these dark elves that are, are elites in the system that are actually like friendly to you and we need to be the ones fighting the culture war. But at the same time, Yarvin's got this idea that he kind of views himself as this Coriolanus type figure where, you know, us, you know, yokels out in, you know, middle America that vote for Trump consistently or whatever, um, you know, we're those Vulsions that he'll never be able to relate to. And on one hand, I'm like, I, I get that, you know, I, the odds of me really being able to relate to, you know, a Silicon Valley dissident is probably close to none. But, you know, you can't, um, I... I I don't want to be ruled by people that have the same sort of disregard for me exactly. that like my current cool. crop of elites do. And right. that was my biggest, my biggest complaint. It's just like, I don't want to trade, um, you know, oh, new boss, same as the old boss type situation. Um, I would really like things to be, you know, moderately better at the very, for starters, right, for where I live. Because it's just like, well, you know, when dark elves start talking about the opioid crisis and start, you know, dealing with the issue of fentanyl being shipped into the country where there was a drug bust, I think, in Arizona that they captured enough, you know, they seized enough fentanyl that could kill every single American in the country. Jesus, wow. So, you know, 330 some odd million people like that's fucking insane. Um, so, you know, maybe get back to me when the, when the dark elves do that. But until then, I'm going to watch my country get hollowed out from the inside in a very dejuvenelian high-low versus middle sense. And um, it, it just makes me skeptical when I, another sort of Silicon Valley guy wants to tell me how to uh, to live my life, you know, instead of the the current crop of technocrats that are already in charge. Um, so but you, you, I, 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 I talked about this more with Carl. There's a, I, my video on it is called Beyond Elves and Hobbits. Beyond Elves and Hobbits, right. Okay, so just to catch everybody up, Yarvin published a piece that, was using elves and hobbits to basically 
you know, analogize the common people and the elites in the country. And this was written after the uh, Roe v. Wade was appealed. And it seemed that Yarvin was essentially saying, hey, hobbits, stop trying to get everybody to live by your values, which in which he means banning abortion, and let the dark elves, who are like the elites who understand you better, uh, dictate the policy. And what he's really telegraphing is we need to keep abortion around because we can't have dumb people, you know, read between the lines there. Uh, reproducing so much. And that's clearly, you know, he's trying to say, oh, stop, stop uh, putting your, your Hobbit values on the elves. Just let us handle this. Let the, let the dark elves handle it. Um, You said something about, you, you like this thinker who I don't think anybody has ever read besides you called DeJuvenet. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who does yeah. this high low thing. So what is DeJuvenet high low? Uh, so Bertrand de Juvenel was a French philosopher and thinker in the um, 20th century. He wrote a really great book in 1948 called um, On Power, uh, The Natural History and of Its Growth. And uh, he sort of talks about this idea of how revolution sort of happens and how uh, classes of people want to stay in power. Uh, again, I have a video on de Juvenel and how that sort of operates if people are interested but more or less, uh, it is the idea that there is a coalition between, say, the higher castes of society, you know, the, the kings, the, the royal court, as he talked about, um, and sort of the peasantry, the low. And they want to make sure that those in the middle, whether it's the aristocracy, the landed gentry or whatever, they're either on board with the system, um, because if they're not on board with the system, those are the potential alternatives for power to be vested in. And so you have to squeeze out the middle and make sure that they toe the line, they play to the political orthodoxy, because if not, then, you know, revolution comes from the middle uh, and you could get, you know, disaffected kings or most likely the peasantry to come up and rise. And he talks about this with the communist revolution in 1917 and most especially with the revolution in France in, in 1789. And it, it's a good model for us to understand because, you know, we have a very technocratic highly educated elite in sort of Washington that has no problem siding with the lower classes, minority groups, individuals, all sorts of things to make sure that they're represented, they feel heard, that they're given incentives to play along with the elites, whether that's through, you know, entitlements and various forms of the media telling them that you're better than the other guys. And that does a very effective job at sort of keeping the middle part of the country, you know, that red part that, you know, Wanda Sykes said, I think on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever that she really didn't like in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned that, uh, you know, th those are potential avenues for power and you got to squeeze them out. So who is the, how would you characterize in that model, the current peasant class? Like, who are they? What do they do for a living? Because we sure as hell don't have peasants anymore. So like, what, well, yeah, what are I, they doing? The, the model has definitely been adapted a few times. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of C.A. Bond that uh, updated it in his book called Nemesis a little more. But I mean, I think what we see is is that you're, you're watching uh, sort of middle America definitely get eaten alive by this, whether it's just by not really focusing enough on the drug issue or the even just middle class Americans, it's really the biggest aspect of the tax base that has always been the one that gets hit with sort of these larger and larger projects. I mean, whether it's white suburbia, middle America, I mean, 
farmers are probably an exception to this mainly because very large farming conglomerates receive billions of dollars in subsidies yeah. but i mean they i mean independent ones definitely get squeezed from it but i mean i i see where i live right where I, i'll drive through um you know to get to town or to get to work or whatever and i'll see people that live in sort of these just like uh you know pretty decent sized houses they'll have like a trailer or whatever they're moderately middle they're middle class or upper middle class they got their trump 2024 flags and their let's go brandon flags but like you know the the cities keep growing you know people keep coming to where they want to live and you know they're getting priced out for you know places and land that's been in their house in their family name for generations and that that to me i see as an issue i mean to say that there's no you know we don't really have a peasant class and the idea that uh or you know the i would say middle america is sort of the, the middle that's being squeezed out like our peasant class however would be you know those that are you know that probably would be destitute if not for make ready work um lower wage class positions i mean uh, we can like kind of our, our current peasants are working at like the verizon store yeah i feel I like mean, that's the, the one the, the ones that work for you know that the, the will sell cell phones and then their social yeah. media will talk about the need i think that there's a pretty inverse correlation between how much student debt you have and uh who you vote for politically um because i feel like the more that you do have the more you want to vote for the system that wants to forgive it for you um and yeah, i feel like you know the guy exception. that spent the guy that spent fifty thousand dollars and is in debt even more to get an education for a degree that's not marketable and you're sitting there um trying to sell phones or work a really crappy office job is probably the kind of guy that they would want to side against the middle america you know drives a ford f-250 because that's what his job requires to do kind of deal yeah right 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 i'm just trying to like think of like how we even characterize these classes now but i think you're i i, I wrote a little bit about this in this piece that went super viral i wrote about montana i was kind of trying that's to, how i discovered you it was a great piece oh thanks yeah that's that was kind of trying to characterize these classes although i got in, i was actually just rereading because i'm writing a, a, another piece finally and uh I do use the word bourgeoisie too many times. I think that people really were like, what is he, a Marxist? And, uh, you know, so, um, okay, cool. Well, uh, this is going really, really well. I'm actually just loving hearing you talk. So- Oh, no. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, let's talk a little bit about your real talks, which are these great things of you fishing in a pond. Uh, I don't know. That pond must be nearby you or something. It's not uh, a very large pond, so I'm surprised well, there's fish. Well, in it. yeah. Uh, well, I, I I live with family. We have a 20 acre lot, and we've got a pond literally like you know a hundred yards from where we live. So that's where I, I go and do it. Uh, and I just I, I it's a place where I can record footage, and I don't have to do like video editing or anything. And it's a way for me to just get unscripted takes or opinions on my mind um i did speech and debate in college and things like that so very easy for me to articulate off the cuff and you know i'll do a few recorded takes and if i like the one that sounds with the least pauses or filler words or uhs and ums then we'll go with that one and we'll, we'll put it out there and uh have something for the audience to enjoy yeah they're great they're really they're really good and i i actually how do you do you have any tips for reducing filler words because you're like a master at that uh i would say that it just requires practice i i realized very and even when i go back and watch previous live streams i'll like really chastise myself it's just yeah. like matt you're better than this like come on you have these lovely pewter metal plates that say you're good at talking out of your ass why are there so many uhs and ums and pauses or filler words but 
Uh, there are some drills that I like, I, I would tell people like, um, for example, and again, I'm doing it myself. The, a good example would be to take a, a random topic, right? So say you draw something out of a hat and it says, all right, you're gonna talk about fire trucks for 60 seconds. And the moment that you say, uh, um, or you pause for too long a period of time, you got to restart. Uh, and that's a really good way of doing it. I mean, it's been drilled into my head because it's just like, okay, Matt, you have 30 minutes to ha pick a question and research it and deliver a seven minute presentation on, you know, what is the future of feminism in Uganda or whatever, <laughs> right? You know, so that kind of attitude has been drilled into me for eight years of high school and university. So it just... It's a skill that takes time to develop um, any class really on also just like salesmanship, you know, the ability to cold call or sell things or to give an elevator pitch. I think really, if you ever go to like one of those like sort of cringy chamber of commerce networking events where it's like these usually like middle-aged harpies that are like trying to like sell you whatever they're doing or consulting service. A lot of them will do like, all right, all the businesses here go and do like your 15 second, you know, elevator pitch. I think that that's a really good thing for people to learn how to do. So for anyone interested or has a podcast or whatever, I mean, develop just like a really good tagline, like you see with other businesses and know what you are so you can expand on it. Right. Well, what's the tagline of the Prudentialist? Oh Lord, I don't have one. <laughs> I've never, I've Go never on. given it much thought. Um, uh, you know, I, I, when I started, I would tell people like, well, thanks for joining this intellectual journey. Cause oh, I, yeah, that's good. you know, but nowadays I, I couldn't even tell you what I, what I am now. I, I, I don't like, I'm not in any one specific camp. I'm not yeah. in, I, I like to consider myself relatively independent and I'm friendly with people and I have mutuals that have each other blocked. So it's just, uh, um, you know, someone who's just diplomatically engaged with the world and doesn't right. like the project of modernity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doesn't like the project of modernity is good. Um, okay, so in, in one of your real talks, you talk about the attention economy, which I liked. And you say this thing over and over again about seeing your face on the screen when you're done, I guess, shit posting. And uh, the point seems to be like that we're being attention hacked. So actually, speaking of taglines, the old tagline for the carousel was, you know, culture and politics and the attention economy, I think. So this is something that in the world of advertising, I've dealt with a lot. People talk about this a lot, how to capture attention and et, et cetera. Um, so what is your, but I would like to just ask, what ex exactly is your point about the things we digest and and how would we go about being more conscious of that sure so at the beginning what i mean about the like the seeing your face is is that um more or less when you turn the screen off at night right the phone is black or whatever and you can see the reflection of yourself on your phone screen that's now turned off and i want people to be happy with what they see which is basically a reflection of themselves because, you know, if you go to bed at night and, you know, you're, you're done shit posting for the day and you turn off the phone and you kind of see this like haggard fat face or whatever that's just been shit posting all day or, you know, doing in towers on Twitter, then maybe you might want to reconsider what you're doing with your life. You know, you want to go home and rethink your life. But uh, the, the thing about the attention economy to me is, is that we are consuming what I think is sort of this like digital ayahuasca, right? That like we want to enjoy this experience. And I think Twitter and other online social media platforms 
are like a transhumanist way almost to enter an astral plane, right? You know, where, where people talk about taking DMT or peyote or ayahuasca and they're like, oh yeah, like we saw demons. We saw people, you know, telling us to do these terrible things or we saw machine elves or whatever. Uh, not to just, you know, whatever these people see on those drugs, I've never taken them. But I think that on Twitter, I'm it has like a duality to it. Twitter has this duality of it's both a platform it's a it's a plane of existence, but at the same time, it's also a drug. Uh, it's this it's a, it's it's an edible because I'm consuming this stuff, and the algorithm and Twitter and how it operates. You know, they've got people on there that edit the algorithm. They edit how these things to be set up to be as addictive as possible. And so, you know, we were now addicted to the substance that allows us to see other parts of the world and existences that we normally wouldn't see with our normal, you know, eyes when we go out and do our everyday stuff. You know, we might see something really weird or cringe on a billboard when we drive, but we may not see, you know, the caricature of femininity, which is Dylan Mulvaney interviewing the president of the United States, if, if it weren't for Twitter, right, you know, where people were, you now I'm like, oh, I'm aware of Ayea girl, that, that individual that somehow got published in Reason Magazine, who at one point in time defended, you know, sexual intercourse with dogs. You know, it's just like, to me, that would be my equivalent of like, okay, I just took DMT and now I'm listening to this like goat horned person telling me that God isn't real, right? Like, so we, we're all fighting for our attention and those things strive for our attention. The, you know, other parts of Twitter all strive for our attention. The latest things that are trending want our attention. Um, advertising, like you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it too. I work in like grant writing and nonprofits. So you have to sell a narrative to people. You want people's attention. And I think it does a very good job at making us so attentionally or stimulated in an overload that, oh, we're not focusing on the things that really do matter, the things that are more grounded in, in teleology or our own vitalist well-being, our own health, our own families and things like that. Because uh, Twitter has a tendency and uh, Twitter is probably the worst because that's where a lot of us are. And that's where like the discourse is like people will say the internet's not real, but then all of a sudden some guy named raw egg nationalist has a own documentary on Tucker Carlson originals, you know, like, Oh man, like that's like the fourth mutual that's been on Tucker Carlson. Originals, you know? Like, Oh wow. So maybe Twitter does have some uh, effect on reality, but I-, I want people to make sure that, you know, you're consuming it wisely, that you're not being so obsessed over current thing and getting excited over, over current thing. And um, really what inspired that whole talk was I was listening to, uh, a lecture series by Father Maximus Constus, um, who was a, an Athenite monk who kind of came back from the Holy Mountain and started really, you know, translating a lot of work and still does a, he's a fantastic speaker and lecturer. And he's just like, yeah, so much of our mind is addled by this attention economy that it really does a number on your soul and your ability to live a, a spiritual and prayerful life is almost completely obliterated in today's day and age. And you have to be really mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You're reminding me of the beginning of Astral's podcast. Uh, there's a quote that I think is read by Zero HP where he says, "The it's, it, I'm going to mess this up, but it's something like the internet is an ocean that we create as we're swimming in it. And in that ocean, there's monsters, shagaths, and you know <laughs> something like that. Uh, and I think that that's kind of what you're saying is we enter this self-created world where really there are monsters and you can get really obsessed. I that happened to me last week. I, you know, it it turned out that California just changed its law that 
so they can technically take your kid away if you don't get them gender affirming medicine. Mm-hmm. And I was just so, I was like, it affected my psyche so deeply, you know, that I couldn't really like focus on anything else, you know? And yeah, it's, you know, seeing the big boobs, uh, shop teacher, you know, stuff like talk about monsters, <laughs> yeah. like totally a monster, you know, they were seeing in this ocean and it's, I mean, is what, like, we can know that, but how do you, I mean, it seems like, what are your tools for not letting it overcome you? Vigilance, mainly. I I think vigilance is a big aspect of it. I mean, I've been primarily just looking back on a lot. The the thing about the internet is, is that, you know, all this thing, all this information is now accessible to us. And the, the cool thing about sort of like right-wing Twitter is, is that, yeah, we can bring all these like ancient thinkers back to, you know, yeah. common parlance, which is great. Um, I think the same sort of applies to r- religious aspects. So, I mean, I've been, lately I've been going through a lot of religious reading, both in my own journey back to Christianity, but I was, um, you know, I was talking uh, to someone yesterday about it and um, it was, uh, I was reading guarding on guarding the intellect. And this was a, a an ascetic monk named, uh, what's his name um saint uh isaiah the solitary and he just oh, sort of talks about you know ways to sort of keep your brain and your your wits about you and your focused prayer life and your religiosity towards god and your you know to serve him with fear and trembling and he talks about all these ways in which distractions that you know as you begin to improve your relationship with the lord like distractions will you know they'll withdraw like the forces of evil with with withdraw for a bit he says but they're, they're going to come back like the that the first attacks over the second wave is going to be stronger you have to prepare yourself and so I, I i take time off of twitter i'll take breaks i think that we should probably do that more i i mean orthodox jews right they have that day where they're just like no technology don't leave the home right yeah. you know oh, yeah. no I, yeah. I i think that that's something that you know whatever flack people on right-wing twitter want to give me i think that that's a very important thing to do is that people should take days off where they're just like I'm not on Twitter today. I'm not doing anything. I moved my whole geopolitical show. It used to be called the Sunday stream. I moved it to now being called prudent observations because I don't do the show on Sunday anymore. Um, after liturgy, after fellowship hour, I don't want to do anything in regards to the internet. I'm barely on Twitter on Sundays and I don't want to be on YouTube or do anything because yeah, you know, that's the Lord's day. It's not my place to be doing anything. And so let's take time off. I just think that you have to be vigilant. And I think that you also need to I think you also need to have friends that'll tell you like, buddy, like, come on, you know? Uh, and that's why networks are also so important. So it's just like, am I, when you ask yourself the question, am I really obsessing over this? Well, if you're asking yourself that question, odds are you probably are. Yeah. I think that what you're saying is the spiritual element is extremely important. And I, and yeah. I've seen, I love what you said about guarding the intellect. That That's, that's a cool, I want to read that for by whatever monk that's by. And yeah, uh, I see my friends who do keep, shabbat you know which is yeah. no phone from sundown friday night to sundown saturday and i mean you know there's all kinds of stupid rules of like oh you can do this but you can't do this when you get into judaism you realize it's an extremely jewish religion it's like all about like like exceptions <laughs> and there's the exception and the exception and oh well how can we like you know, there's whole charts you know it's completely how, legal, how legalistic and yeah it's so neurotic and so legalistic it's it but i will say my friends that do and I want to do it more. I actually did it last week. My mm-hmm. friends that managed to keep Shabbat, 
uh, I can, they're so much healthier in their brain because they just have this day where they completely unplug, they do nothing. They're not engaged. And I think it just lets you recharge in a way that's so important and it is really uh, necessary. So I think that that's great advice though, in terms of staying grounded and not, yeah, not just giving, I think the people who get really depressed in this give themselves over completely to the meme stream and they forget, you know, they're, they're completely in it and uh, they're just reacting, reacting, reacting. And it's, I think that's like the worst place you can be in. Yeah. It's more body, more spirit needs to be um, part disciplined. I think. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So let's, uh, let's finish up here. I think, I, I don't know how much more time you have, but I try and keep these to like an hour and a half. So uh, no, that's fine with me. I've got, I've got a pretty clear schedule today. Okay, great. So let's, let's kind of finish up here by, we talked a little bit about your great ability to unpack things and, and to like, in law, it's all about these tests, right? We all have it's oh, this prong, three prongs, you know, in, in order for it to be copyright infringement, you have to consider the impact on the market, the amount of the taking and the, um, you know, intent of the taker, right? You have some really good, if looking at your work, you unpack things very well in this way of like making steps. You t you've talked about the necessity of having a positive vision, not just a reaction, but a positive vision for a world that we want. But you haven't, I haven't heard you talk necessarily about like what that is. So I'd love for you to tell us like in maybe some steps what does the, if we save, and maybe you don't even agree with this framing, but the way that I see it, if we save America or the West from this evil force that is trying to turn it into a global vacuum, um, which I don't even think is a person or, or a group of people. I honestly think it's just, I literally think it's evil. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Uh, and, and, and a vacuum looks evil. But anyway, what does the world after this look like? What's well, the positive? That's, that's the big debate though, right? Is, is that you'll hear time and time again, people quote Jonathan Bowden and say, you need to clear them out. Like they all, these guys need to go. Uh, clearly the situation is, you know, foobar. Like the, we got to get them, they got to go out. The question then always gets oriented around the question of, well, okay, say that happens, then now what? Right. Um, you know, it, it's like that sort of post-credit scene of Finding Nemo where the rest of the fish escape the dentist's office and they get into the ocean and they're still stuck in their plastic bags. And the puffer fish goes like, great, now what? You know, like, how, <laughs> how do we get out of this? How do we get out? Um, and like, that's, that's a like, good question. Um, and that, that becomes the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, well, what does the positive vision for America look like? I think that you can be anti-progressive as much as you want, but you you do need to stand for things. And um, I think the guy that has the answer, or at least a piece of the answer, um, is again, sort of the, the gentleman that I do listen to all the time is, is the distributist. A while back in, I think the beginning, uh, the late fall of 2020, he did a video called To Be Right Wing in Nine Points. And they, and it wasn't like anything that told you that you had to be mega base. You had to say, you know, the, the certain, you know, 14 words or whatever. It was just, you know, you need to have some teleological grounding. 
You yeah. need to believe that you're going to leave something behind that is greater for your children, that whatever you've done is going to be better off for your progeny. Um, you know, you need to understand the importance of hierarchy, sovereignty, et cetera, like very basic things that are good starting points to go forward. And those are the things that I would definitely keep in mind is just that whatever society that we're going to put forward as a positive vision, it needs to be something that recognizes, I think, the value that individuals have not in the progressive sense of, oh, everyone is special. Everyone can do what they want. You know, the, the whole two consenting adults thing, you know, it's not hurting anybody that needs to go for starters, I think, totally. in, in this positive vision. Um, secondly, it would probably be something along the lines of the, uh, the worship of the market cannot be whatever conservative, you know, whatever based world is going to be right. As people like to say on Twitter, uh, it cannot worship the golden calf of the market. Um, I feel like what we've seen out of fusionism, this sort of combination in the 1950s and 60s from conservatives to combine libertarian thinking with, uh, can, you know, conservative social tradition, we're going to be market oriented, but we're also going to have our Norman Rockwell painting. Um, I think what we got out of that was a, you know, conservatism that was going to be like, well, it really doesn't matter because you know, oh, like the nation, that doesn't matter because, you know, we got to keep the GDP up. So worshiping the line, it would definitely not be on that that list of a positive vision. Um, talk about the neocons kind of? Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, fusionism is not just explicitly, I think, a neoconservative thing. I mean, I, but it does kind of come from the neoconservative revolution and it yeah. gets its roots from Buckley, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. even earlier Trotsky, but that's a whole other, <laughs> Ironic <laughs> ironically, Francis Fukuyama is one of the people that really got the claim going that uh, neoconservatism has its roots in Trotskyism. But wow. uh, yeah, I, fun fact, people. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, that's the thing, though, is just that I have to recognize that whatever my positive vision may be or whatever I agree with isn't going to be the same as, say, um, you know, my friend in Oklahoma, who we probably agree on like 90% of things, but like, we also are, you know, vi vi uh, very different kinds of Christians. And so that comes to, to you know, in mind. So as for a positive vision, I think that it would have to recognize the importance of social hierarchy. Um, the fact that egalitarianism is a big factor in as to what got us to where we are. And that we have to be mindful of the fact of what's most important is, is what comes after us. So very fam family oriented, how do these policies operate and what are their impact more specifically on a man's ability to be, you know, a provider and to help raise a, a family accordingly, because, you know, we, we live in the ashes of the sexual revolution. We live in the ashes of a lot of the things that have come out of like, not to sound like I'm being like pro Ted Kaczynski, but I think more Wendell Berry is just like a lot of the things that we've said in the name of technological and social progress um, have not improved upon the previous technology, right. You know, to go with IP law, you know, yeah. how does this improve from the current, uh, you know, patents that are out there, right. Uh, you know, the positive vision would have to incorporate, well, how does it improve the current condition in ways that, build upon what what is already existing like are you are you only improving or are you radically throwing the the proverbial baby out with the bathwater? and uh that, that that's sort of going to be i think my focus in 2023 is what that positive vision is yeah. because i've spent all of 2022 and i'm going to have a i don't know when this will come out but on, on my channel i will give my uh, event speech that i gave in, in february of 2022 which is all about 
how to not be digitally deracinated, how we can psychologically triage people, bring them out of the digital and into the real and how we can improve things locally on the ground. Because, you know, that's been my big shelling, you know, talking point out of 2022 has just been clearly, you know, the online is good, but we also need to focus on what's right outside our windows and focus on community building. And then, okay, now what? You know, that, that'll be, I think, the project going forward for me as the prudentialist is yeah. what does that positive vision look like for Americans? Because our problems are very uniquely American. You know, the entire span of the continental United States is basically the length of the continent of Europe, you know. Uh, to Americans, a hundred years seems like a long time, but to Europeans, a hundred miles seems like forever. Yeah, uh, you know, I can drive across the entire state of Texas, and if I were to put that same distance in Europe, I could drive basically from the Pyrenees Mountains to Switzerland in one drive. You know, of like fourteen hours. Yeah. So, yeah, well, yeah. That, that those are the things that I think I'll be working on in the future is that positive vision. That's cool. I think um, that all makes a lot of sense. It it makes me think of things that actually can be done and the two things that come to mind listening to what you just said because you're talking about localism i think localism is a, a massive part of it simply ending foreign investment in local real estate yes and i think every the funny thing is everybody on the left and right all wants that pretty much i mean it's like maybe the maybe as you were saying the neocons the what'd you call it the would you use the word the oh oh fusionists fusionists uh, maybe yeah. the fusionists don't want that but i don't think anybody now wants there to be chinese investment in large real estate investment trusts making shitty condo buildings in your neighborhood well, yeah and that who would wants be, that no one it, yeah you that'd know, be like, the positive vision yeah so i think that banning that is like one thing we can do uh second of all in terms of the great removal, the great purge, I think I'm with that, though. I, I agree. I think we have to do that. I think oh, that that's the only way. Yeah, what? I said same. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah I you just, have to clear yeah. out the people that are selling out large swaths of, of yeah, land you know, to the Chinese. Exactly. They're rotten people and they just have to go, you know, and they just have to pay, you know, like they have to pay for these ridiculous ideas that they have. And... um. So I think those are two things that can actually happen. We're, we're just talking about the purge of the bureaucratic managerial class of these people who are, you know, the head of a million institutions and they're just forwarding this far left ideology that nobody wants. Nobody likes this shit. And yet they're the ones that are kind of in control. Um, so it raises the question then, and uh, and this is a point that I really wanted to make with you of, of the how, right? Because how do we get these people out? How do we go back to a more family-oriented, more localist, more um, substantive world? Th here's the issue that I see, right? Mm -hmm. We have this great thing that we see on Tucker Carlson that we see everywhere of good times wait, make weak men, weak men make bad times, bad times make strong men, strong men make good times, right? And we are here in the... <laughs> Where are we? Bad times make strong men, right? That's like kind of like where we supposedly are. We're in the bad times. The weak men have made the bad times. And now we're trying to figure out how to return things to the good times, right? The problem that I see with that is that the, the weakness of these times, the badness of these times, we keep trying to use historical, even what we're talking about right now, we keep trying to use historical references. Everybody's always talking about Rome. Everybody's always talking about, you know, these uh, the American Revolution, the uh, other times. Our time right now is really different than any other time. Mm -hmm. 
So whatever this change is going to look like is going to have to really not look like the times of the past. And the three differences I see with this time are one, women. We have women. In prior times, we were talking about women in what? Five percent of of you know institutional positions of power, maybe. Now we're talking about like sixty. You know, we're talking about 50, 60 percent. And no one has addressed this. Nobody, no academic has come along and said, this is what a power structure of women looks like and how it differs from these power structures of the past. I think we're doing it with the idea of the longhouse. That's what we talk about when we're talking about the longhouse. But inevitably, when you stuff a power structure with women, I'm not even saying good or bad. It's just going to be a completely different thing. It's just going to naturally be different. Two, we're talking about abundance. We're in a period of, of mass abundance. Times in the past, they've never dealt with that. Times in the past have always been scarcity environments. So like, I look a lot at the artists of our time and I see so many of them are sober, which I find to be a really interesting uh, like difference from these revolutions of the past where everybody was drunk, right? Because I think it's almost like in order to fight it now, you have to be more sober, not less sober, you know, almost. And then three, obviously, the obvious one is the internet, right? It's connectivity. So what what can we do? And obviously, you don't even, I, I, this is not something that you need to answer. But I'm just wondering <laughs> if, if we can talk about uh, maybe how does this fight differ than the ones of the past, given some of these new new uh, factors that we have to deal with. Oh, I think the three that you definitely outlined are are the key differences. I I would add globalization, uh, yeah. maybe to that third one, because the internet, yeah, can connect me anywhere. But like our economy is no longer it's not a mercantile economy. It's not based on what resources you have. It's not specific trade agreements between one king and another, right? You know, it's you know free trade agreements, and you know, oh. Our, our oranges come from here and then they get sent somewhere off to be like packaged and frozen and then shipped back right you know um so yeah. I, I would say yes. that the yes the food you're eating is yeah. literally like you're on the beach in california and you are eating shrimp from thailand that have been thrown there they've flown <laughs> there and it's like it's a seafood restaurant and you're like none of this food comes from I, I could be anywhere and eating the same food yeah it's a great point that's a great point yeah yeah uh, so I, I would say globalization uh, for sure makes it different. I mean, e even the guys of the Revolutionary War, right? Like, sure, you can talk about your the, the Seven Years' War being like the first global war or whatever, but it's just like, well, you know, you have much bigger fish to fry nowadays because uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, why is the American government, you know, funding things that could potentially cause, you know, life, you know, altering, you know, things with pandemics and a biolaboratory in the Wuhan Institute <laughs> of Virology, right? You know, it's this, so globalization for sure is a, a big difference. Um, our, our, our techniques, not just like, oh, our machinery or, oh, the internet, but like our social techniques, I think that includes women, like the pill has fundamentally changed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there are, I mean, there are numerous things that in studies that have shown, you know, oh, they, they, they pick, you know, part, they, they'll break up with their partners when they, they stop doing it. You know, it makes them select men that they normally wouldn't want to sleep with yes, uh, yes. or marry. 
and yeah, we the, the matriarchal aspect of it in this sort of mix of liberation theology, you know, like if we could just free ourselves from these constraints, we can engage in this sort of like chiliastic future where there's peace on earth and, uh, you know, the good times will roll and all is good. Uh, and that's what you, that's where you get like the paradox of female happiness, right? Where, yeah. oh, all these liberation things have taken place, but women are more unhappy than ever. I, we have to incorporate those. I don't, I don't think anyone realistically wants to go back to 1896. Uh, there's probably a very small, like you know, a dozen people that do, but I mean, you can't go back there. You can't even go back to 1950, uh, at least not anytime soon. And, and so we have to be mindful. And I think what we really need more than anything now because of these issues is how can we synthesize the problems of the past that we like to allude to, whether it's Rome, whether it's, the 1930s and the, the revolution that came in the night of depression. How do we how do we reconcile and synthesize those to the problems of today? Um, and, you know, people talk about like, oh man, like this great reset's coming. It's like, yeah, in the night of the pandemic, this this revolution kind of took place. And I, I'm ripping off Garrett Garrett's uh, "The Revolution Was" right that was written in 1938, and people should definitely read that because he kind of outlined how the managerial revolution took place two years oh. before James Burnham did. Um, and he's Wait, so what does he say about that? Well, he outlines what FDR campaigned on. And then as soon as he took power, all the things that had already changed. And he was telling conservatives and he was telling these anti-New Deal guys, You're, you people are telling us to be watchful for a revolution. The revolution was, the revolution already happened. And here's how it happened. And here's what's going to happen. Um, the thing that makes Garrett's work so interesting is, is like, in 1938, you probably had a chance to actually clear them out and take them back a little easier than what we do. But he does offer um, ways and means of like, well, here's the areas of the economy that would need to be reversed. Here are the, the structures and the laws that we need to do so. And so I think that's our most contemporary example, rather than going back to the the days of Rome or the days of the American Revolution. Uh, I think he No, I think that's dead on. I mean, and you're 100% correct that the revolution has already happened. It's a, it, yeah, we're yeah. living in the after effects of the thing that it already occurred. And it actually, it would be great if we had an FDR to come around and even if it was stuff we didn't like, tell us what had happened. Because that's a big part of the thing. That's a big part of the problem is they pretend that nothing has changed you know they kind of pretend that this is oh this is always how it's been you know that's always it's always been uh completely wrong to um not give your kids hormone pills like well who could ever who could ever think that that was a bad thing you know like biden just said that and it's this total 1984 like thing where you're like what like you just made that up you just like like literally five minutes ago you said that that was terrible. Now you're saying who would ever intervene on parents like that? You know, and it's just, I think you're 100% correct that it's like maybe looking back to people who, where that same thing had already kind of occurred with the managerial revolution, whatever you call it, FDR, is a great call because it's like, yeah, it's like there's this notion of, uh, I wish they would come out and detail their their ideology even or their institutional presence a little more, you know, which it seems like I don't know if that's going to happen. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Oh, well, I mean, it's funny because you mentioned another FDR. I think that's why you get all this conversation about Caesarism uh, yeah, nowadays, right, right, right. you know. 
where people yeah. do want some kind of you know authoritarian figure to come and change things or take over and, and fix the problem uh I, I i'm always i'm very cautious about that you know just yeah. Uh, you know, put not your trust in princes and the sons of men, for there right, is no salvation yeah. in them. But like, on the other hand, it's just like, well, it, you, you might get FDR 2.0. And we know how that kind of turned out. And yeah. maybe we shouldn't be embracing 1930s New Dealerism as our kind of way forward, because that only prolonged the Great Depression. Very and, true. Very and, his crony, and his cronies got us into World War II. So maybe we should. Yeah. And then set up the Civil Rights Act and everything. So, yeah, no, I think you're that's what to say to Moldbug, right? Is like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be using this terrible example as the <laughs> example, you know, and because and, he's kind of saying that it's like this Red Caesar, new FDR, let's return all the power to the president. I mean, I think that that's a good idea in some in some senses and i can understand the desire for it because we do need somebody to come and just remove all these people oh, of course so i agree with the red caesarism in that sense but but also um yeah i don't think like i think we need to remember this is fucking america like i i, I like america i like you know what i mean like i don't i don't necessarily need to throw out the whole project yeah so yeah yeah that that i agree with um you know I, I can understand being against the attitudes of what the U.S. government is doing, clearly with foreign policy and everything like that. Like, yeah, I, I want that to end, too, because yeah. we're, we're heading towards disaster, you know, on, on a nuclear scale. And we should be very mindful of that. But on the same time, it's just like the people that are, you know, whether through a layer of irony or that they genuinely mean, you know, like, oh, it, it's all got to go. Uh, I'm like, I don't think I can, you know, get on board with that, buddy. You know, I, I kind of like where I live. I have skin in the game. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> right. Right. Um, are you starting a family? Do you have a family? Is that something that you're working on? Uh, it's something that I would like to have happen. But okay. uh, at, at the current moment, no, I'm not married. Okay. But that's, you're working on it. Are you, uh, you said you're not Roman Catholic. Are you Catholic at all? Or are you doing the Orthodox uh, well, I, I throughout 2020, I went to numerous churches that were still open. I mean, even with the mask and social distancing, I, I visited Catholic churches. I visited as many Protestant services as I could. And um, I had a friend of mine uh, named Robert who kind of really had suggested, well, why don't you just look at an Orthodox church? Um, and so I, when I went to my first divine liturgy, I, I felt at home. And so that's where I am now is I, I go to a, an OCA parish and that's where I, my, my camp is settled in. That's great. I'm talking to more and more uh, men of your age who are finding the same thing. I, I was just hanging out with I, uh, a guy who I just did a podcast with on Friday, who which I'll release later, and he's going through the same thing. He's like, I, I was shopping around and I, I'm really loving the. So what's the core? It's called a a what liturgy it's called oh the the, the divine liturgy of saint john chrysostom is the one that you'll you'll hear most of the times throughout the year and then during lent you'll hear the liturgy of saint basil but i mean there's just minor differences between the two and um, what actually but, is that like a sermon or is what, basically or uh, really it's i'm i'm entering a place where you know the renaissance never happened i'm, yeah, I'm in yeah, a, i'm in a yeah. position where the, the the truth is you know rooted in a place where the it's rooted in the incarnation uh the liturgy is you know this sort of bridging of connection where you know we're here in god's kingdom i'm here where the lord is present i mean he's present everywhere but i'm in a place where you know i'm i'm to engage in sacramental living and communion with god 
Um, there is, there's of course a reading from the epistle, uh, you know, the, the new Testament, there's the gospel reading, um, and during parts of the year throughout services, you'll hear stuff from the old Testament, but I mean, everything that you're going to hear throughout that liturgy is rooted in the gospel, the old Testament, the Psalter. Um, and I mean, it's, it is very much the continuation of, you know, the old Judaic, you know, practices before the second temple was destroyed. Yeah. Um, and that stuff lives on within the Orthodox church, but, uh, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I mean, I've been to traditional cat Latin mass with the Roman Catholics, but, uh, there's nothing like it. That's great, man. The return of Orthodoxy. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it in the Jewish way too. So I, I feel you, you know, I, I, um, yeah, I went to a church out here just to see it called mosaic which is like one of these sneaker geek dad churches, you know, like, have you seen these sneaker? <laughs> no, I, I, I sneaker, haven't. Although I sneaker, pre sneaker preachers, sneaker preachers are these like, you know, kind of like hip hop preachers who have like really nice shoes, you know, and they get, <laughs> they go like this, like they, they like wave their hands. And I was just like, man, this is like, I I just was so uncomfortable the entire time. And then I went to a, the reason I started getting in this again, I was like the most self-hating person ever. And I went to a Hasidic wedding and men and women were separated. The men were like singing and discussing. And, it, you know, it's this kind of combination of, of uh, a people and a, and a religion and a, a tradition all at once. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is exactly what a wedding should be. This is like every wedding I go to these horrible, you know, in my world, everybody is super secular, but they're all, they want to be Jewish, but they're not, they don't even know what Judaism is. You know, my cousin got married by a literal magician. <laughs> like, like, oh my. like he was like pulling things out of a hat. And I was like, this is just the worst thing. <laughs> in the world. Like it is like so unserious, you know, it's so, and then I went to this Hasidic wedding and I was like, oh man, but like dancing, crazy dancing. And I was like, man, this is like, but like, you know, men and women can't dance together. It's just the men dance and then the women dance and it's like not together. And I was just like, this is so cool. Like it is just the cool, like this is exactly what, I need like and I was looking for spirituality and I was like okay well I guess I'll just start talking to a rabbi I, I I it's definitely I've been to a lot of secular weddings or you'll have someone who is some kind of clergy or ordained somewhere to do it or you'll I've been a witness to courthouse weddings uh, before but uh I, I definitely I had a very similar feeling going to a, an orthodox wedding service at our parish a young couple had recently gotten married and the procession and the prayers and the reading from Ephesians and the reading from the Old Testament and prayers for many children and for a long life together in service to one another. And, you know, to love your wife as Christ loves the church, as he tells the man, um, and the wedding crowns and everything that come with that. It's just a, it's, it's beautiful and regal. And, but most importantly, it puts us back where we should be grounded in, which is, again, that teleological grounding, our relationship to God. Yeah, totally. So is it possible, like, I don't know, I know a lot of men are kind of doing this Orthodox thing, but are there a lot of women in the church? Or are they like Polish or something? Like, I mean, like, are they, yeah, who are Well, they? I mean, I, like, I live in the middle of nowhere, so it's just, for us, it's a bunch of Anglo converts and a few of the founding members that were of, uh, you know, Slavic descent, but also yeah. very much American. But I mean, uh, I mean, the women, I think, are more on board with it than the men are, especially if they're married and are interested in the church, because, you know, they their focus, of course, is on the family. So 
I mean, uh, our, we have more women and children at our parish than we do men. They're myself included. There are only three bachelors there. Really? And so it, it's wow. just a, a very, very big and populous place. And so it's, it's very much a place where, you know, I think that a lot of men get into it online, but I didn't find my religion through Twitter, right? Like every part of, every religion's got a weird part of it, right? Like the New York Times did that article of like weird Catholic Twitter, you know, every, every religion's got their own little niche online community. I didn't find religion through there. It was more like, well, well, Matt, you're, you're on dialysis and you've just come back from this like post-op infection that almost killed you. So maybe you should get right with God in your mid twenties. <laughs> and so uh, now that you've had this very real brush with your mortality. So I just started visiting and started asking questions. And, um, and so, yeah, when I, I travel around, I've met friends through other parishes and whatnot. And it's just been a, I'm always surprised to see who you're, who you're going to run into in people's life stories of how they come back to religion. A good friend of mine, you know, he sings in a choir, but he used to be a professional poker player and then kind of realized that that life's really stressing him out. So he kind of stopped and, and found God. And uh, so it's just a, it's a beautiful thing that it's not just a, I think on the internet, because, you know, religion and politics kind of go hand in hand, you know, it's a very masculine space, but in, in the real world, it's very much men and women together. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. No, yeah, it's very true. Very true. And it's great that you found that. It's just really encouraging to see that, you know, and I think, I think the, another factor maybe we could put with this revolution is the lack of what you've been through, the lack of near-death experiences. You know, I think the fact that young men haven't had those makes them fucking idiots, you know, they may, it makes them not understand what spirituality is because they've never gotten close enough to They've never gotten close enough to it. They've never gotten close enough to their own mortality to see that there's so much more. I mean, like, you know, that the idea of being an atheist is actually in every way as insane as believing in God, if not more so, you know, they just have never gone to the lengths they need to go to in order to see that. And I think, um, it's great that you've managed to like get there, you know, not, I'm not saying you were an atheist before. I'm just saying like, you've seen the importance of it, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, I was raised non-denominational Protestant Christian. I, it was very much sort of this agnostic, libertarian, cringe kind of new atheist <laughs> type in like the in my high school and college years. But yeah, no, this was definitely the, the wake up call. I mean, you saw this with COVID where, you know, all these crazy libs telling you to mask up or yell at people. Yes. Like they, it would, they were so afraid of death. So afraid of uh, death. It's, it's like, exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't fear dying. I fear the judgment yeah. that comes afterwards, but I don't fear right. death. Yeah. Right? Fear God, and, you know, fear yeah, God, should... not death, you know, and it's but, they, they, living your life of crawling around the earth, being terrified of death is the dumbest fucking thing. It's so animalistic. It's like, you're, you're literally an animal. You're just like, you know, like a, like a twitching, like animal who's just constantly acting as if you're going to die at any moment. And it's like being a human is literally not doing that. And I just think it's so crazy that people live their life that way. It's, it's this like pharmaceutical death fear cult. It's so, I, I think I, the reason I became me is I um, come from an ultra lefty, family who was like this they they were terrified of death at every moment and everything was we need to go to the doctor right now you know i had terrible asthma i almost died many times because i had terrible asthma but what is actually asthma asthma is basically over medicating your kid 
to the point where they have this like panic reaction to everything. And that's what my asthma was. And getting over it was literally a mental exercise. I had to like go to the lengths that I was afraid to go to. I had to like go, you know, without an inhaler, go sleep in a room with cats, you know, in order to like do something. And doing those things was how I got over it. And it was just, that was literally me. I always had a relationship with God, even from being a little kid, but that was re- forming this relationship instead of of with fear of with like i it's inarticulable but like it was with something you know like saying my life on this earth is not going to be dictated by constant fear of death and it's just it's so simple once you get through it but so many of our brethren are stuck in this mind prison of just terror and i think uh, god is the only really way to get out of that yeah, I've people like you'd said they they don't and especially when you said animal. I, I mean the new atheist bit where they're all like, yeah, you're just this like sack of like meat with yeah. bones and we're just a like, tiny nothing, you know. Yeah, like, yeah and it's just yeah. like, well, why would you dare do that when you are you are made in the image and likeness of God? I mean, people don't. I think especially for for Christians and those that are like sort of Christian new atheists or whatever. It's like you've you've spent your entire time fearing death when you've literally been raised in a religion or you've ex- lived in the cultural religion that has told you to not be afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, like to, to, to deny to deny the logos incarnate for me, it's just like, well, you're, you're going to be miserable and that miserable, you know, you're, you're going to try and drag us all down in your misery, but you know, and to, be, per- to be persecuted is a blessing. And so I'm not too worried about that. Exactly. And their happiness comes from the relief of terror you know yes. the momentary relief of terror and, that, and that's what they're seeking and that's why they're all taking pills and drinking which i'm very guilty of but you know they're seeking the release of terror and uh that's such a stupid shitty way to live your life and since finding spirituality for me man it was literally this was happening like three years ago two years ago uh study the torah every week it was like the third leg on the the stool you know it's like i had the the emotions i had the thoughts but like finding that spirituality that was like that was the key and once i had that it was like my life made sense and you know i had to lose most of my friends and family though (laughs) in order order to get that but you know i don't know i think a small price to pay right in regards to getting right with your soul how does your family feel about the east the orthodox thing well, I, th- I think they found it a surprise considering that for the longest time, uh, you know, I didn't, didn't, I would always say things in like my college years or just like, well, I don't really see myself getting married. I'll, I'll, you know, become an attorney and I'll just make money and I'll be comfortable. And I, I don't really care about anything else uh, to where now it's, I think they're rather surprised that I've done this very literal 180. Um, you know, they, they, they both work and they, they both make, you know, do, I wish they would go to church any kind, but uh they're rather encouraging i think the person who's the happiest is my grandmother because you know she's a very diehard southern baptist which is just very happy i found jesus again so <laughs> um i was like despite our, our our very different thoughts on theology it's uh she's very happy about it so i've but i haven't lost any friends or family due to religion thank goodness politics a few but that's a i'm, I'm kind of okay with that yeah right you want to lose those people that's what i realized that you just get rid of all of them um anyway okay let's let's wrap this up here Anything um, you want to, so you've talked a little bit about your work next year, maybe boiling down what this positivist vision looks like, which I'm super excited about. But in the meantime, um, I think you're really doing the hard work, which is we need, we need people to do that. And so you're doing it. 
what can we is there anything you want to talk about that you're working on now where can we find your stuff i would like a little bit of a brand architecture of because you have so many different like things well well, uh, it's funny because i'm I'm working on a a welcome to the channel or welcome to the prudentialist video so people know what my content is about uh so you'll that that answer will be out very soon actually (laughs) um but as as for what i'm currently working on i'm working on um uh, a series of essays that i'll have hopefully out by the spring of this coming uh year so it'll be a, a book that'll be out on just living in, you know, flyover country, um, you know, the, I, I call it the dispatches from the Imperial Heartland. That's what I'm working on. There's your, there's the, there's the working title and it'll be stuff for my Substack, but also a few essays that I've written that no one has seen before. So that, that's definitely what I'm currently working on. That's my big project. Um, but for those interested, you know, there's a, a great little friendly, uh, version of, uh, Linktree called findmyfriends.net, F-R-E-N-S dot net slash the prudentialist you can find me on youtube substack telegram odyssey gab um as well as rumble so uh just to make sure that i'm everywhere in case you know one day susan or parag decides to get rid of me from the the bird app or youtube so uh, i'm a little bit of everywhere but uh the main content that people will always expect from me is every saturday at 1 p.m eastern uh that's prudent observations that's where we cover geopolitics theory what's currently going on in the world uh, on top of that, I'll do random scripted videos on culture. I try to do one every couple of weeks or so, um, but I'm really putting a lot more focus into the Substack, and that's just prudentialist.substack.com, prudent perceptions. And I'll write a little bit on culture, foreign policy, the things going on. I'm going to hopefully put out a short article today on um, the news about Rishi Sunak being the uh, the new prime minister of the UK, because it reminded me a lot of what Jonathan Bowden said with the election of Barack Obama. So, um, but you can find me there at findmyfriends.net, the Prudentialist. And if you're an audio guy, then, you know, you can always just listen. Um, but I do YouTube videos as well as a lot of essay writing. But how do we listen? This is my biggest frustration because I, I'm a total listen guy. I don't watch okay. because I'm just always on like moving around. So how do I listen? Because I don't have YouTube premium. Like, and I've actually, okay. I actually tried to do Odyssey but it was the same. They also don't let you just. Okay. Well, it sounds play. like then what it sounds like then is I've got to find like a an anchor or some kind of FM type deal to to make that happen. Um, I also have started all of my scripted videos. I've started putting up on uh, Substack as well, so people can listen there. But uh, that way, it's another avenue for me to because I can upload videos to Substack, so I can upload to all my other regular places and then Substack. Oh, so well, you but... upload direct to Substack. Yeah, yeah, I, okay. I, I do. That helps a lot for videos that, you know, uh, are are the real talks or the scripted yeah. ones so people can read the script if they want or, or listen to it. But um, if you're if now that you're telling me that you're a big audio guy, then I will find a way to make sure that my stuff is available on a on a like some kind of podcast type steal. Well, just because, you know, the thing that happens when you try and listen to audio on YouTube, it doesn't let it's like it gets screwed up because the, when the screen goes blank, it stops. Yeah. Right. And so I, maybe Substack doesn't do that, though. So maybe I should try again on Substack because. You, you can't just like move around. You have to like keep the screen open and it's, that's the the issue with it, you know? Um, but awesome, man. Well, I'll put all the links in there um, to maybe not to every single one of those platforms, but to, to, to most of them. I think it's great that you're all over all of them though. It's very smart to, to be doing that. Um, 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this. Uh, and uh, anytime, open invitation. Come back whenever, whenever you want to show something. I'm here. Well, I greatly appreciate it. And thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Okay. Take care.